Thank you, Kurt, for that challenge to us and also to the Renew audience who have joined us uh, this morning. Uh, and uh, Kurt, Ladon and I had a very similar conversation this week, and I'll tell you she has more faith than I do. But um, I hope that it'll inspire all of us to have conversations like that. Uh, it was our board that assigned Kurt to uh, give us that challenge today, but it was my decision to ask him to do it right before our teaching time. Uh, because it's, it, it's the perfect backdrop for our teaching this morning from a, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Turn there. Now, before you turn out and mentally steal yourself, our tough talk teaching this morning uh, is not a money talk, okay? We will not arm twist you in any way. That's a promise. I'll bring up money in the last 58 seconds this morning. So if you want to zip out for that, I'll let you go. As a matter of fact, the Jesus passage we'll look at today was, was chosen before this investment challenge even came into the picture. The only thing I was thinking of when we scheduled this passage for today was, wow, what a powerful account as the last teaching I get to do for Mark's gospel, but before I head off on three weeks vacation, I just hope I can do it justice. So Mark's gospel, chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. We are now two days, or perhaps three, depending on how the days were counted, two or three days before Jesus will be executed. He knows it, but his disciples are still either clued out or thinking they're going to do everything they can to protect him from it. This account is, is one of uh, seven, actually, uh, what has been called sandwich stories in the Gospel of Mark, where Mark starts with something that appears to be the main storyline, but then he switches to something else, and at the end, he returns to the original storyline. Brackets, so to speak. Two slices of bread on the outside, what seemed to be big picture reality, and it is, but it's not all of reality. In between is the, is the meat of the sandwich, the satisfying, the, the, the satiating substance that is the main point. And in this case, it's a real-life report that over the centuries since it happened has achieved exactly what Jesus intended it to achieve, to grab us with its power and beauty, to inspire us to live against the flow to resist the downward pull and distraction of life around us and to live in the flow of the story that will be all of reality. Will you let this story grab you again today? So let's first read the, the outer story, what appears to be the dominant story. And as we read it, notice, notice the, the, the posturing, the positioning, the power plays that are occurring as things are getting close to Jesus' death. Mark chapter 14. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. So we're here we have two groups of Jewish authorities, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, who are often at odds with each other, but now they have a common enemy, Jesus. He's a common enemy because they sense that his aim is to remove them from their positions of power. So 
They only have one option, and that's to remove him from the scene. And by all appearances, Jesus is walking right into their trap. And they can't believe it. It's almost, it's almost like he's baiting them to set the trap. But they're not dumb. They realize that Jesus has escaped their traps before, and he's actually used their traps to set them up. And they've learned. And this time, they will be one step ahead. This is spy and intrigue stuff at its very best. They think the trap that Jesus is setting for them is that, is that he, he envisions himself as a, as a populist style of leader, winning people over by his charisma and riling them up to take on the elites. You know what I'm talking about in our world today. And festival time is the perfect time for Jesus to stage a coup. He's been stirring the pot all over the country now for three years, and he's coming into town at festival time. You see, the population of Jerusalem at this time is about 60,000 people. During festival season, anywhere between 100 and 300,000 more people came to town from, from all over the countryside. They came to Jerusalem and the towns around Jerusalem for a week-long a week-long party, actually, and they would, they would camp in tents or they would Airbnb it in the, in the city or surrounding towns. And, and for many, it was a, it was a healthy part of, of reconnecting with each other and with God. Worshiping, declaring their trust and hope that one day the God of gods and the Lord of lords the one true God will fulfill his promise to make things right again with all of creation, worshiping him, submitting to him and his way and thriving under his loving leadership. But for some, it had become just a party. For some, the hope for the future was more about nationalistic hype. These leaders are sure that they know Jesus' plan and they will not walk into that trap. As much as they want him and as much as he appears to be right there for the taking, this is not the time. They'll wait until things have calmed down a bit. And then there's always Rome that is in the picture. Festival season got the attention of Rome. The Roman governor would often move to Jerusalem from his headquarters in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, along with some troops, just to monitor the potentially volatile mob of fervent pilgrims. Keep it all in check. There's already been a precursor in his triumphal entry into the city, right? And the chief priests do not want to stir up Rome. What they don't realize is that Jesus' mission has everything to do with this festival. The Passover festival. This festival celebrated the liberation of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. When God sent an angel of death to take the lives of all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. But every Israelite who had dabbed the doorposts of their huts and houses with the blood of a slaughtered lamb was spared. And the great exodus, which ultimately led to the land of God's promise, was begun. And at this festival, the Passover, a one-year-old unblemished lamb or goat was sacrificed in the temple on a certain day. And in family gatherings all over the city and region, a lamb was eaten 
And the account of the Exodus was read one more time. When Jesus came on the scene, how was it that John the Baptist had introduced him three years earlier? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one, says John, that all of your festivals, all of your rituals have been pointing toward. He is the one who will be the one and only, the final sacrifice for all sin, for all of our shortcomings, all of our failures before God and humanity. The one who will bring and be the kingdom of God. And in the last days before Jesus' death, he declared, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to himself. And later on, as he's processing all this and recording this, John adds, he said this to indicate clearly ahead of time what kind of death he was walking into. In the minds of the religious leaders, although they wanted Jesus eliminated and although they saw him walking into their trap, this was not the time. They would do everything to avoid a showdown. In the eyes of Jesus and in the plan of God, this was exactly the time because this was his mission. And so we come to the closing bracket of this little scene, verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas the insider in Jesus' circle that the religious leaders are using to set their trap didn't get the memo. Or maybe he did and he sees it differently. This is the perfect time from his point of view. And so for his own reasons and with his own salesman skill, if you're in a negotiation, you'd want this man on your side. Judas helps these uptight religious leaders change their mind, helps them see this is the perfect time to pull the trigger, and he sets everything in motion for God's plan to be fulfilled. And if you can't see God working behind the scenes in this one, you've got to ask yourself why. If you zoom out and look at the, this, this whole chapter, actually chapters 14 and 15, you will see that this entire chapter, the longest one in the book, chapters 14 and 15 together actually are all about Jesus being abandoned. The leaders of the system that pointed to him abandon him. The one who is in his inner circle betrays him while he's still in the circle. After Jesus' circle celebrates the Passover meal, they do the worship thing, they fall asleep while he wrestles. All of his disciples run, and then the crowds abandon Jesus. Finally, Peter disowns him. And in Jesus' final cry from the cross in chapter 15, even God abandons Jesus. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And Jesus dies alone. But in the darkness, the dirtiness, the doom of this scene, one jewel stands out. 
the glorious beauty, the powerful insight, as we'll see, and the dramatic courage of one woman whom Jesus says will stand out for all history as a hero of the gospel, a lesson for all who see in Jesus the hope of the world and the love of my heart. Verse 3, while he was in Bethany, a small town just outside the hype of the Jerusalem hub that has become a bit of a retreat place for Jesus, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, not a leader, but an outsider whom Jesus has obviously healed. Into this scene, a woman came, a woman whose name is not given in Mark's gospel from other accounts. We know who she was, but for Mark, it's important that she's anonymous, so we won't talk about who she is this morning. Her name is unimportant because it's her act that is so important. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar, poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why, is, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? What she has done is a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. One woman not part of the religious or civil leadership, not one of the inner core of leaders Jesus has chosen for himself to take over when he's gone. One woman gets it, which is supposed to say something to us. In Mark's view, this is a key story through which we are to interpret what happens to Jesus in the next few days and a story which tells us how we can live in light of life around us, what happens to us in light of what Jesus will do as he walks into the trap. This amazing story, just before Jesus goes to the cross, invites us, actually it begs us to process three questions. Number one, why is it everybody missed it? Why did they miss it? Why do I miss it? Number two, where do I begin if I want to be part of the heart of this story? And number three, what rhythm do I need to embrace to live in the real story? So, let's talk about that. Why did everybody miss it? Well, why, why do the religious leaders not see the trap that they were coming into? Why do the disciples not see in this woman what Jesus sees? It's the same reason, by the way. So why does everybody miss the point? Why do religious leaders not see the trap when they're so desperately trying to avoid it? Why do the disciples not see in this woman? Well, let's just think for a few seconds about some very seemingly different kinds of ways that we respond to life, that we responded to life this week, okay? Think about these words and ask yourself, what, what do they have in common? Fear. Worry. Control behavior. Resonate with any of you from this week? How about anger, frustration, 
a, a, a pessimistic, negative outlook on life, feeling trapped. Are we in yet? How about frozen, lonely, busy, and no time to do what we say we want to do? Jealous, impulsive, uptight, unnoticed, feeling put down, not getting what I deserve, regretting or perhaps defending poor money choices that put me into big debt. Can you think of something every single one of these have in common? Some of us are saying, yeah, me, <laughs> right? We're all there. We looked at it last summer as we talked about the story of another unnamed woman in 1 Kings 17. The one thing that every single one of these feelings and behaviors have in common is a scarcity outlook on life. We look at life through the scarcity lens. We approach everything in some way from a, from a not enough perspective. Every single one of those are rooted in a not enough perspective. Look at them. Look at the ones you resonate with. Isn't it a feeling of scarcity and lack that makes you feel that way? And all of these are some, in some way rooted in the belief that I will either never be able to get control or desperately having to gain control. So let's talk just about the debt thing. It's like I'll never be able to save enough to get what I want. So I might as well just either blow it on the now or steal from my future, which is debt, right? Steal from my future to, to pretend now. Scarcity. Why did everybody miss it? Both the religious leaders and Jesus' own disciples, both of these groups had the same problem. They're looking at life through their own personal, self-focused, scarcity issues. Now, some of us, Trying to get a little antsy, and, and, and you're saying, no, 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 stop psychologizing already, right? Well, just give me a chance, okay? Work with me for a little bit. What was the scarcity issue of the religious leaders? They're afraid that they might be losing the control that they have or think they have. They're so self-referenced, they can't even see how, how their own scarcity mindset has, has caused them to use the position that God gave them to gain power over people in ways that destroyed them and gave God a bad name. What was the scarcity problem of the core disciples, the ones that he had chosen to be the human instruments to start his church after he's gone? Well, they've exposed it several times as Jesus has been telling them about his death. They don't want him dead, and they will do everything they can to keep, it as, keep him alive because it is, is through him that they think they will get the control they don't have that they think they deserve, they deserve. Their biggest question is, who's going to sit next to you and be boss over all the others? It's what social work researcher and professor Brene Brown calls the, the never enough problem. So let me ask you again, what is your not enough point? The point which causes you the fear of losing what you think you need or deserve or the worry or the feeling of giving up what you think you need to deserve. What, what is it? The thing that causes you to, to, to respond in anger. Now let's see why looking at this story through the scarcity lens is not just psychologizing. What does the Bible say is at the center of all of our personal issues and all of humanity's issues the reason that Jesus had to go into his death? It's called sin. 
right? Which has its roots in what? Walking away from the status God gave us, which we no longer have, which is what both the disciples of Jesus and the religious leaders feel in their hearts, just from opposite ditches. One group desperately trying to hang on to or preserve, preserve a status they think they have. The other group desperately wanting to achieve or gain a status they think is within their reach. Both groups living out of a sense of scarcity that is rooted in the hearts of human beings because we were created to have it, but we walked away from it and lost it. Every t single time we act and think out of scarcity, we are simply acknowledging what this Word of God says is a central reality. Because what is the picture, the main picture the Bible uses to describe sin? It is missing or falling short of a standard that we know we should be living by and a status we know we should have. All have sinned and fall short of the standard of the glory of God. What does falling short means? It means that the less than factor we are all living with and have some intuitive awareness, the scarcity is a lack of standing before God. And looking at it from the scarcity lens, it's Judas, one of those disciples that does the most logical and pragmatic thing. He sees this situation totally from how can I get the most out of this lens, and he takes advantage of the situation and leverages what he can for himself. I may not get that status, but I can get some money. There's actually a word that Mark uses in these two outside brackets of this, the, this sandwich that leads us to understand this scene exactly in the way that we portrayed it. There's, there's a key verb in verse 1 and in verse 11, the same word that frames this whole story. What were the religious leaders doing? It says they were seeking, seeking for a way to arrest Jesus. What is Judas doing? Verse 11, he is seeking. It's the same word for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. That word seeking is actually used 16 times in Mark's gospel and except for the very last time after Jesus is risen from dead, it is always used in a negative sense. This isn't about pursuing after God from a pure heart. It's why some translations, as they translate this word, they use the word scheming. One commentator says about this word seeking, that seeking connotes an attempt to determine and control rather than submit and follow, which is what Jesus calls us to do. Grasping after something I don't have rather than living in the flow of what God is doing and will actually give me what I really want. Scarcity is the issue, and its roots are way deeper than we really want to believe. Can you see it? And before we look at where the story takes us to deal with the scarcity issue, can, can we just do a little bit of thinking what your nevertheless point might be, or, or never enough point? The, the place at which you are afraid you're losing control, the place that you've given up on, but have become cynical about in other people, jealous of others, angry, worrying. What's underneath it in your heart that you need to see, that you need to bring out in the open? We all tend to either hang on to something too tightly that we think we have or focus too hard on getting what we think we deserve. Will you look in your heart 
and ask you, what is the hurdle or the barrier for me right now? And how might scarcity be the real thing underneath that? So what does this story tell us about where I need to begin if I want to see the real story and live in it? To get the meat out of the more Jesus experience that this whole gospel has been talking about. Well, let's, let's see how Jesus responds to this woman's radical act before, before we actually look at her act. Because it's how Jesus responds to her act that tells us how we are to interpret it. So let's go down to verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done what is to me a beautiful thing. The poor you'll always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume in my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. She has done what a beautiful thing. It's a word that means valuable, virtuous. Literally, it's, it's good. She had what was deemed to be valuable, but she used it in this way because she sees in Jesus ultimate value. You guys are making it about you, what you lack, what you're not getting out of it, what you're afraid you're going to lose. She's making about me, about who I am, ultimate value. The act of this woman was a symbolic act, recognizing who Jesus really is. It's an act that transcends this, what has he done for me lately, thinking that whether we say it or not, we wrestle with, don't we? See, look what he's given someone else. Look at what somebody else is getting away with and he does nothing about it. Where do these statements come from? What do they expose? Our scarcity mindset. What this woman does is worship. Not just with words, but with what she has. Remember our definition of worship from last week? It is me, not because of who I am, but because of who God is and what he does, giving him what he does deserve. Responding to the overflowing richness of the grace of God. But Jesus sees in this knack not just a recognition of who he is as the ultimate good. Listen again to what he says in verses 8 and 9. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Whether she knows it or not, we don't know. But Jesus helps them and us interpret what she did that the disciples should have seen because he told them clearly three times what would be happening in the next few days and why it was happening. She anointed my body beforehand in preparation for my burial. My burial, my death is what? It is the gospel. A death to remove in God's eyes and in my heart the scarcity factor I was born with. The disciples are wanting a coronation kind of anointing so that they can get what they think she, he, they need. This woman has given Jesus a burial anointing so that they can have what they really need and become for Jesus the bearers of the message of what we really need. 
And the reason this story is where it is in Mark's gospel is because one of those men in that circle whom Jesus exposed very personally after his resurrection for some of his own scarcity and control issues. Peter, right? Peter is Mark's key mentor, his key source for this gospel. And Peter remembers Jesus' words about this woman and makes sure this scene is included right where it is and right how it is. So what does this story tell us about where we need to begin addressing our own scarcity issues? You know, we'll never address our scarcity issues by getting what we think we have lost or think we deserve. Never. Jesus does not want us to address our scarcity issues by doing some outward religious duty that makes us look good. That's what he's saying when he says, the poor you will always have with you. You see, at festival time, one of the things they did to celebrate God's goodness to them was to take offerings above and beyond their normal giving, offerings for the poor. Jesus isn't saying, don't do that. He's saying, you guys pretend you're concerned about the poor. You're looking good in God's eyes and people's eyes when you give. You're trying to compensate for your scarcity issues, not admit them and deal with them. Here's the point. We'll only address our scarcity issues as we come to the point of seeing Jesus, not just for who he is, but what he has done in his death to deal with with the issues in our hearts and then preach that gospel over and over again to our hearts. Paul, who was one of this group of religious leaders, we don't know that he was there at the time, but after Jesus' death and after the movement of Jesus began to spread, Paul was was part of a key group still trying hard to do what these leaders are doing before Jesus' death, stop this Jesus movement from going any further. Paul was out of control in his own desire to control. And then he meets Jesus. And here's how he frames for one church, the church in the city of Colossae. Here's how he frames what they are to see in Jesus. For in him, in Jesus, all of the fullness, the fullness, not scarcity, the fullness of, of God dwells. He lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins, your falling short, your scarcity, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. He canceled every accusation against you, nailing it to the cross. Folks, I don't know what scarcity factor you came in with this morning, and I have no idea what you thought you needed when you came in this morning, but there's not one of us here that doesn't come with some scarcity feelings because we happen to belong to a group that's called humanity, born after an event called the fall. This week, as I was, as I was processing this teaching in my mind and this story, something happened to me in which I thought I was losing something that I felt I deserved. And I fought letting that go. I shouldn't have to let this go. And I fought feelings to one particular person in that. Not my wife, okay? We're good. And nobody in this church, okay? Just being clear. But one of the things I had to do again is relook at the beauty, the empowerment, the fullness of what I know I have in Jesus and say to him, you know, 
I'll just let that go as well to you, not to a person, to you. And I'm looking forward to how you're going to show to me that even in what I think of as a potential scarcity, you are enough. There's a one-time act of doing that, seeing in Jesus, the one who has paid for my deficit before God, bought my freedom and placed myself under him and, and allowing him to put myself in him. Have you done that? Have you said, I'm, I'm willing to accept that transfer from my kingdom to your kingdom? Jesus, Jesus wants to do that for your sake. Will you let him? But there's also ways in which we need to Again, preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again. Okay, let's look briefly at the powerful act of the woman and, and, and answer the question, what is the rhythm? What is the fullness rhythm that I need to embrace to live in the real story, the story of the fullness that God and Jesus has drawn me into? While he was in Bethlehem, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. Nard was an, was an aromatic, oil, an essential oil, which was extracted from the root of a plant in India. We're told three things, very important things about this perfume. Number one, it was fragrant. It was, everybody knew what this was. It was pure. Nothing diluted about it. This wasn't just a little bit of it dipped in water and then bathed on. It was pure. And number three, it was expensive. How expensive was it? Well, in the next verse, we see that it was, it was more than a year's wages. Okay, let's just think about that. What's the wage that you think you should be getting? Let's go on the, let's go on the lower end of the spectrum. Let's, let's, say, let's say you think you should be making at least $40,000 a year. Some of us would have to go more than that, but, but hold it. It, it. It's not just the perfume, this flask in which it's in, is also expensive, and that flask was shattered. Can use it again. So, I know this is low-balling, but let's just go with a, with a $50,000 gift. Can you see why these guys are gasping? Why they think this is a waste? She broke the jar and poured all of the perfume on his head. I mean, I mean, sell it and give him 10%, give him 20%. You see, we, we always measure things in terms of cash value, don't we? And, and how much we keep and still make it, look, make it feel like we're generous. So how does this woman get this jar and, and what did this gift mean for her? Well, the most common understanding is that this very expensive perfume and the flask it's in is probably a family heirloom. Like this is her... This is her retirement plan, her nest egg. Which makes us see another way Mark is structuring his version of Jesus' life and how we need to respond in it. At the beginning of this section is the story of a woman who gave all she had to live on. In the opening scene of this last section of the gospel is another woman who gave away her only guarantee for the future. One woman gave all she had to live on in the present. The other one gives all she has to live on for the future. This is an act of worship, an act of a life of worship. And in this act, we can see a little more clearly a pattern of what it means to respond in worship to who Jesus is and what he has done. Broken, 
the flask is broken, poured out, the perfume is poured out. Do you, do you know how we know we're not stretching it to see in this, in this a further, further fleshing out of what it means to live a life of worship, the pattern we need to live in? Because in the very next section of this chapter, Jesus is celebrating with these disciples the Last Supper during which he commissions us doing what, what he commissions us to celebrate regularly what he did on the cross in, in what we call communion, which we do monthly. What is it he says in the very next section of this chapter? Jesus took the bread and he broke it and says, this bread is my body, which I am giving up for you. And then he took this cup and he said, this is my blood. The new covenant God is effecting in you, no longer requiring the sacrifice of lambs, but the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My blood poured out. This is the pattern that we need to live in responding to who God is and what he's done. When Jesus says, follow me, this is the kind of way he's invited to live. Broken and poured out. Two things always go together. It's not one or the other. It's, it's both together. What is brokenness? Very quickly, brokenness is an attitude, a posture of my inner person. An outlook that recognizes my own kingdom-building strategies are not working. My own attempts to deal with the scarcity factor, the way I look at the world around me, is actually part of the problem. First, it's a response of, of repentance. When I realize that in many ways I'm a fake, I fall short of before God, sometimes in a very specific sin that I've been trying to hide, it's exposed. Psalm 51, David experienced this when he says, the sacrifices of God are not these lambs and stuff that we use. We do that only authentically when we sacrifice out of a broken spirit because a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So first of all, it's, it's, it's acknowledging, not covering up, not, not living past, acknowledging and repenting of the ways in which we actually do fall short. Second, brokenness is an attitude of surrender, the acceptance of a circumstance I can't change without violating a value, value or commitment that I say I hold to. Third, like this woman, brokenness is a choice to give up what I have that is good. Not bad, good to God. It's another way of saying I will live like Jesus said, whoever tries to save his life is going to lose it in the end. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Broken and poured out. Poured out is what we see outwardly, is the outward expressions of a truly broken heart. Faithful service, making commitments and keeping them regardless of whether something better comes along. Anything you give up for God, to God, is worship because you can't outgive God. It's living in the fruit of the Spirit. Goodness. Gentleness, kindness, joy, peace, patience. Those are not feelings. Those are, those are behaviors and attitudes and actions that come out of a broken heart. Are you pouring out or are you hanging on? Can you ask yourself that this week? Am I pouring out or am I hanging on? What are you hanging on to that Jesus is saying, let go, let it go to me, for me? And then finally, here's the last 58 seconds financial sacrifice to Jesus. So let's go back to this investment challenge. It's not about money. 
It's about the mission we believe God is calling us to unite in and to declare the gospel, the good news of Jesus who came to free us and to fill us with himself. I'm not going to lean on you. Kurt's already invited you. I just want to say two things. Number one, if what you do give is not coming from a heart that wants to live broken and poured out, I want to tell you, you can keep your money. God doesn't want it. You'll either feel bitter about it or you'll feel proud and smug about it and judgmental of others and what's not happening with that money. But I want to say a second thing. I firmly believe strongly that if even half of us truly lived in the broken and poured out rhythm, understanding that our scarcity issues have been met and dealt with by Jesus, we'd have way more money to do as a church, what we believe God is calling us to do. So would you think along these lines over the next few weeks, and let's see what God can do in our hearts as we decide to live against the flow of the downward pull and distraction of life around us and our inner hearts and live in the flow of the story that will ultimately be all of reality. Because Jesus walked into the trap. I do not have to be trapped, even by my scarcity feelings, by anything I don't have to be trapped into holding on too tight and living out of whatever scarcity it is that tends to control me. Can we do that? I think we can. Let's pray. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief.